Dose of Leadership Podcast, Episode 53. Welcome to another episode of the Dose of Leadership Podcast, the show that brings you inspiring and educational interviews with today's most relevant and motivating leaders. Each episode is dedicated to highlight real-life leadership and influence experts who dedicate their lives to the pursuit of the truth, common sense, and courageous leadership. And now, here's your host, Richard Ryerson. Hey everybody, welcome to the show. This is Richard Ryerson. Thanks for tuning in to another episode. This show is brought to you by my sponsor, Audible.com. If you're like me, you like to read, but you're having trouble finding the time to squeeze in all those great books, well, Audible.com is a perfect solution. Audiobooks are great. I never thought I would like them, but I love them now. It's a great way to get caught up. I listen to and get caught up on the book as I'm driving to work, if I'm exercising, any free time working out in the yard, I can get caught up on all my reading. You can go to uh, my website, doseofleadership.com slash audible, and you can uh, download a free audiobook. Any audiobook they have, over 100,000 titles to choose from, you can download it for free, listen to it. You can sign up for 30 days with no obligation. If you don't like it after 30 days, you can cancel your subscription. But again, it's no risk to you. Go check out doseofleadership.com slash audible and make your smartphone smarter. Well, it's an honor to have on my show Captain Charlie Plum. He graduated from the Naval Academy at Annapolis and went on to fly the F-4 Phantom Jet on 74 successful combat missions over Vietnam. On his 75th mission, he only had five days left before he was supposed to go home. He was shot down. He was captured, tortured, and imprisoned in an 8 by eight foot by 8 foot cell. And he spent 2,103 days as a prisoner of war in communist war prisons. During his nearly, nearly six years of captivity, Charles Plum distinguished himself among his fellow prisoners as a professional in underground communications and served for two of those years as the chaplain in his camp. Since he's returned home, he's talked to more than 4,500 audiences in nearly every industry, and they've been spellbound as Captain Charlie Plum draws parallels between his POW experience and the challenges of everyday life. Captain Plum, welcome to the Dose of Leadership. How are you today? Richard, I'm just living the dream. How about you? Well, I'm living the dream, too. I think, you know, talking to... uh Fellow gold wingers like yourself, it's always a, a privilege and an honor. You know, of course, I've talked to a handful of POWs. You know, when I went through uh, Sears School, obviously, up in Brunswick, Maine, we met a couple of actual POWs. And I was, for the life of me, I was trying to remember their names for this interview, and I could not remember his name. But it was the um, the enlisted guy that fell off the back of the ship and memorized the names. Yeah, that's Doug Hedwell. Doug Hedwell, yes. Gosh, I couldn't remember his name. He spoke yeah, to us uh, there. He's, uh, he's from uh, South Dakota, fellow Midwesterner. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I didn't get a chance. I was so busy. I was going to look. I was going to Google that, and I didn't get around to it. Is he still around? Do you know? Oh yeah, yeah. He's alive and well in San Diego, and uh, of course he came back, and uh, we we gave him a battlefield commission over there. It was really kind of amazing because you know he, he got this. This poor enlisted jet, you know, he's a seaman, uh, Douglas Hegdell, and, and he, uh, was thrown into all of the fighter pilots and all the officers, the, you know, the, the college graduates. We, we had 200, uh, in one of those camps, we had 200 top guns, and here, here shows up this sailor, and his great line was, um, I wasn't captured like you guys, I was rescued. <laughs> <laughs> And indeed he was. Nineteen years old, he fell off his back of the cruiser Canberra. Yeah. In the middle of the night. And uh and, and got washed ashore. 
you talk about leadership and, and, and where leadership comes from, here is here's a 19-year-old lad, okay? He didn't, he didn't know where he was, you know? Uh, on those ships, they don't tell you where you're floating around. He had no idea where he was or what he was doing. And he's thrown into this, this situation that was so foreign and so far from Clark, South Dakota. And the amazing part of Doug Hansel and his story was that instead of blaming other people like the rest of us did and feeling sorry for himself and going into this woe-is-me mode of life and denying that he had any control of his destiny, he set to work and he started taking risks. He, he began by memorizing all of our names, put the names in his songs, and he would sing these songs over and over and over to himself, just working eight or ten hours a day on this list. Went back to his list, memorized our, our identifiers, our social security numbers. Went back to the list, memorized our next and ten and hometowns all across the country. And then, not kidding, Douglas had to memorize the telephone numbers of each of the relatives of each of the prisoners. Well, about Three years into his captivity, the enemy was, uh, was starting to um, get, a lot, get a lot of bad press from around the world. And they decided they were going to send a, a prisoner of war home early, before the end of the war. Now, they first went to John McCain. McCain was my flight instructor in Meridian, and uh, and I knew John pretty well. And I was uh, the first guy to contact him when he was shot down three months after I was. Well... They, asked, they, they told John that they were going to give him early release. And by all right, McCain should have gone home early. Mm-hmm. Poor guy poor guy had seven broken bones when he was shot down. But by far the most most injured POW I ever saw, the guy was close to death when he uh, when he showed up in that prison camp. And, he, and, of course, his dad at the time was St. Pack. Right. Uh, Admiral J.S. McCain was commander-in-chief of the city. <clears throat> so... So John said, tell me, you know, I'm not going home. I'd never embarrass my father like that. I'd never give up on my fellow appeal that is you'd take your idea and shut it. Man. Well, <laughs> he, got, he got in a lot of trouble for doing that. But then they went to, to Doug Hensel. The sailor fell off the ship. Well, he, he feels the same way about this thing. He said, I'm not going home either. And then our, our senior, our senior guy, Dick Stratton, sent a message to Doug Hegdon said, you will go home. This is a direct order. Shut off, there. And, of course, Hegdon said, aye, aye, sir, and home he came. Well, now, he had been in prison two years. Of course, he was here by accident. He had been starved, humiliated, lonely, tortured, like the rest of us. And, and so what do you think he did when he, when he got home? The guy went west coast to east, north to south, spent his own time, his own money, went through each one of the hometowns he'd memorized, dialed each one of the telephone numbers he'd memorized, spoke to each one of the wives he'd memorized, and told her that her husband was alive. Yeah. So, to talk about leadership coming from, uh, you know, from different uh, different points of view and, uh, and, uh, and different arenas, you just, you just never know who's going to pop up and be a leader in your organization. Yeah, you know, I think, you know... It, here in history, and it's so amazing to you. And it was the first contact that a lot of people had, or, or at least the confirmation that a lot of people were still alive because he memorized everybody's name and phone numbers. Right, right, and um, just an amazing tribute. 
we um, in the Philadelphia reunion coming up. But forty years uh, since we all came home, and um, when we came home, Richard Nixon was president, and he invited us to the White House, which uh, and, and through the largest dinner the White House had ever uh, served. In fact, it still is the biggest dinner the White House has ever served back in 1973. Now, this is 40 years since 73, and uh, we're having a, a reunion at the Nixon Library. The chef is still alive that, 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 um, uh, that prepared that meal for us, and he's going to prepare the same meal uh, next week in, uh, at the Nixon Library. Wow. <laughs> That's great. Well, before we, I'm going to talk about, there's so many things I want to talk about the, the experience in the camp, but let's, let's set up for our listeners a little bit briefly on the, on the backstory. Again, you, you were, you grew up primarily in, um, in, uh, northeastern Kansas, just outside of Kansas City, correct? Yes, that's right. And then you decided to go, you got an appointment to the, uh, uh, Naval Academy and, and, uh, went on to flight school and, um, married a local gal, right? And was from, uh, where you grew up. Pretty much? Yes. My high school sweetheart. So talk to us about uh, kind of briefly what, what got you to Viet- Vietnam. And I know in, in your book that you talk about, and I know you because you, you wanted to primarily focus on that, but tell me a little bit about um, what led you to the passion to, to kind of go to flight school there. Well, I, I'd always dreamed of flying. I'd never ridden in an airplane when I went out to Annapolis. I'd never seen the ocean. <clears throat> I was an AC from Kansas, and I had a lot to learn but I was always fascinated by flights. You know, I see these little Piper Cubs flying over Lee Compton, Kansas, out in the middle of nowhere, and these, uh, in these farmers that I'm sure didn't have a license to fly. <laughs> right. These, these little cubs would sputter around, and, then, uh, and, and I always dreamed of flying. But I will tell you the truth. As a young kid, I, I really never thought I'd ever had the opportunity to even ride in an airplane. Well, I went out to Annapolis and, and, uh, opened my eyes a little, learned a little bit about naval aviation and, um, uh, I, I applied and lo and behold, um, I got, uh, I got a, a slot in flight school. I got a Pensacola and then flew jets up in, um, in Reading, Mississippi. That's where I ran into John McCain. After Beville, Texas, where I flew advanced fighters and then, um, uh, got an assignment to fly the hottest airplane in the world at the time, the F-4 Phantom Jet. So went out to uh, to Miramar. I had married Anne the day after I graduated from Naval Academy. So <clears throat> she was on my arm all the way through flight training and out to uh, at the San Diego where I, I uh, went to the replacement air group, the RAG, up there, and went to my squadron, the F-114 the aardvarks on the aircraft carrier Kitty Hawk. And I launched for the Vietnam War on her birthday, the 5th of November, as a matter of fact. It was kind of a, it was a kind of a bitter, sweet day. Uh, and I was doing what I love to do, and she knew that. But uh, uh, she was going to be alone for a long time. Were the deployments six months or a year at this time? It was uh, until we were finished, actually. Wow. So they didn't. They didn't really. Uh, they didn't really know. The, the standard Westpac deployment was nine months, but most carriers got extended, and we were close to, to our going 
home at nine months. In fact, we were five days before the end of my tour when I was shot down, five days before I was to return to Anne and, and uh, my loved ones in, the, in my country. Wow. So talk to me about that. You know, your book highlights it so well, but I, I thought, I put myself in that position of thinking, God, I got five more days till I'm turning this thing around. I'm finally going to home. I've been away from nine months. And of course, everybody wants to go do this mission. You're excited about doing it. You're not even thinking about really, I mean, I, and no one thinks it's going to be them, I'm, I'm sure. And here you go on this mission with, you know, this great sense of massive force. And then you and your, your Rio get shot down. So talk us through that day a little bit and what kind of what you're feeling up to your capture. Yeah, let, uh, let me tell you about the night before because I think that that gives you some sense of the of the, of the attitude. <clears throat> of course, you know we were all fighter pilots. We we're out there to to, uh, to win the war, and there was really no dissension at all. I mean, we were we were just excited. I was the uh, I was the flight officer. I controlled the schedule of who flew what missions, and everyone was after me to fly right. more more and more missions, and so. There was no reluctance at all. It's a you know a great spirit of, of unity and camaraderie. But the night before I was shot down, I'll never forget the guys got together in the ready room. You know, bet you we were fairly well seasoned by then. We'd been shot up and shot at and lost about a, a fourth of our, our, our pilots, but you know we're still going strong. That. Oh, I guess there were probably seven of us got together, and just a bunch of guys, and we watched the flick and, and laugh and scratch and, you know, tell lies and stuff that fighter pilots do. And, and then, uh, our, our, one of our buddies is a technocrat, okay? He, he would show up with his little handheld computer. He would have prefigured the probability that any one of us would be shot down the next day. Real, real, uh, uh popular guy. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. Well, well, it was all in fun, and he, and so he would have prefigured that we're going to be shot down and captured the next day, and he would tell all of us our probability, and we would laugh about that because, you know, nobody really believed that we would be shot down. Like you say, we all felt bulletproof. Then the conversation took kind of a serious turn, and I, I don't, I don't know if it was because we were so close to the end of our tour of duty or, or the fact that we, you know, we got kind of serious about losing um, several of our guys, but the conversation took a serious turn, and we and we ask each other, "What happens if you get shot down? What what happens?" And to a man, you know, seven young macho fighter pilots admitted it to the other six. Hey guys, I I don't think I can act this. But if I'm shot down and captured tomorrow, I, you know, I've heard about the the disease and the torture and the, and the bad food and, and the loneliness and just send my stuff home uh, and, and tell my wife to get on with her life because this is just a, a mountain too high to climb. And, and I, you know, I think that relates to normal life when any of us just see one of these big time challenges in front of us. The, the first, the first emotion, the first human response is, boy, this is too much for me. I'm, I just don't think I can handle this. And, and it was certainly true that night. Well, the next morning, bright and early, it was an alpha strike. That's a big, big deal. It was a, it was a target, target, actually many, many targets all over North Vietnam, sanctioned by the Joint Chiefs of Staff. And we had three aircraft carriers and five Air Force bases and 
hundreds of airplanes attacking all these targets. Uh, my my radar intercept officer, my co-pilot, and I were hit by a surface-to-air missile, and they exploded some 12,000 pounds of jet fuel and took an airplane down towards that rice paddy below. I ejected, he ejected, and we came floating down in our parachutes over enemy territory. So there's not a military guy alive, but I'm sure you feel the same way, um, that hasn't thought uh, about what happens to you, you know, if you're captured. How do you respond? How strong will you be? Uh, I'm sure you and your buddies have thought about that a lot. So there we were, uh, over enemy territory and uh, uh, being shot at as we came down. Um, but that uh, <laughs> was a um, little brash. Then you made it just knock down my multi-gazillion dollar airplane. Now they're shooting the pilot. <laughs> <clears throat> so I'm dodging bullets as I'm, uh, I'm descending. And, um, you know, flat going off all over the place. My buddies, the looky loose are wondering what happened to Charlie. And, um, and I can see my, my, uh, co-pilot in his parachute about, I don't know, a quarter to a half mile away. So I know, I know he's got a good shoot anyway. Of course, he'd been sitting on that big gas tank. There's a, there's a fuel tank right under the radar intercept officer in that four, and so I knew that thing had exploded, so I wasn't sure what shape he was in. I, of course, the drilling rushes so quickly that you, uh, you, know, you don't even feel things. You, you, know, you, you don't even know if you're hurt. <clears throat> and luckily, I had a few burns, but nothing real serious. So I hit the ground, captured uh, immediately, and hauled off to the prison camp where... Uh, where I was tortured for two days um, for political propaganda, primarily. Um, and um, and that's where the saga began. Take take me to that. I always try to put myself in that situation. You talk about it in your book, and you didn't really have time to be scared. I mean, were you uh, panicky, despondent, morose? You said the adrenaline was pumping. Did, did you think about, man, I'm really in for it now? What were some of those initial thoughts? Well, I think for the first several days, I was actually in shock. Uh, I remember saying weird things, you know, and, um, and, and, and trying to keep my humor, trying to make jokes about things. And, and, um, I, uh, but I was, I was in, in disbelief, you know, that I was actually in, it was, you know, like the old adage, you just think you're in a dream, you just wait. You wait for this nightmare to end. You wait to wake up, and and then it hurt. <laughs> it yeah. hurt a lot. And you say to yourself, "Well, I never had a dream that hurt this bad." Um, and uh, and and so the first, well, while I was hanging in the parachute, and as I'm coming down, you know, of course, I'm looking for a way to escape all this, and uh, trying to memorize things, trying to, you know, to and my eyes are just darting around looking for cover, looking for any kind of a tree line or uh, a bunker or uh, a house I can get into to get out of the sight of these guys that are shooting at me. Well, as it turns out, of course, I came down in a very populated area. There was no escape whatsoever. In fact, they were standing right there when I, when I hit that... that uh, Rice batting, 
and uh, it's talking about waist deep in mud. <clears throat> and so, um, captured immediately and and uh, it hauled away. And uh, watched my watched my buddies, the other fighter pilots, disappear into the into the horizon. Of course, I had a two-way radio uh, strapped to me, but I, uh, on the parachute, when I saw how many people were on the ground, I took that radio out and uh, ripped off the antenna and threw the antenna one way and the radio the other way because uh, they had this pesky um, <laughs> uh, tradition of, of, uh, of finding radio and calling in uh, a rescue helicopter and then shooting down the helicopter. So I, I, I made one last call on the radio before I destroyed it one of the guys that I was too far inland for them to risk anybody trying to rescue me. Because I was, I was, oh, I guess probably 100 miles from the coast. And at that time in the war, we controlled everything over the water, but the Vietnamese controlled everything over the land. Yeah. And so uh, to send a helicopter in that far was surely going to put them in peril. <laughs> so here you are, you're captured, and, and you detail... Um, like I said, those first few days, I noticed one thing that always struck me when I went through, and of course I went through a minuscule amount, but the training we went through up on uh, at SEER training, the thing that always surprised me the most was the lack of sense of time, especially on those first few days. You mentioned a great, I thought about it when I read in your book how you thought, man, certainly this has been a long day and it was only 1030 in the morning and you'd already gone through a bunch of stuff already. How did you, I mean, how did you prevent and I think I know the answers, but I want to share what your thoughts is. Like, and you look back over six years of of this, you know, going to different places, the torture, the starvation, the loneliness, the despair, and then finally, then when you're finally with a cell with somebody else, how do you put up with another human being, even though he's your he's your he's your your bud, and you, that's got to drive you crazy too, you know, just the little idiosyncrasies of him snorting or shuffling his feet or doing whatever. How do you deal with the loneliness? I know you probably get that a thousand times, but I guess what, what well, I... It's a, go ahead. The, well, you know, you start making up things in your mind. Uh, and, you know, of, of all of the, of all of the things that I describe on my speaking tour, uh, and I started speaking, you know, as soon as I came home. And the thing that's most difficult to explain to people is not the torture or the disease or the bad food and all that stuff. People kind of understand that. The most difficult thing to explain is is exactly what you're hitting on is that time element because you know for few people in life have spent five minutes a day you know by themselves right um, let alone twenty four seven and of course we had nothing to do they would give us no books to read or we didn't have a window to look at or a television or radio or blackberry or Bluetooth no communication at all. Well, when you get in a situation like that, and it takes a few months to discover this, you start making up things in your mind. And you recognize that, hey, if I'm going to survive this mentally, I'm going to have to continue to stimulate my own mind. I'm going to have to, to, to come up with things. I'm going to have to write poetry. I'm going to have to sing music. I'm going to have to think back to my entire life. 
and try to recapture every book I'd ever read, every movie I'd ever seen, every teacher I'd ever had, every coach, every game, um, and try to put these things in a in a chronology, in effect, write my autobiography in my mind. And that's what I did. And I would spend six or eight or ten hours a day just going back to day by day from the very first memory I have at age three in Lecompton, Kansas, when my grandmother uh, in the middle of Missouri came through and everybody was out of work. So she had decided she would take the troop all the family to Washington State to pick apples. And I remember that's the very first memory. And then I would trace through that day forward every every thought that I had ever had in, the, in my mind. So uh, so you come up with these little games that, that you play, and, um, and it works. You know, in fact, it's a wonderful thing to, to have that time to yourself. And, it's, you know, I look at that as, as one of the great benefits of spending nearly six years in the prison camp is that you know, really get to know yourself. I can imagine. Did you find when you did that exercise that you, you uncovered memories that you didn't have before? Absolutely. And not only that, but once I had felt that I had remembered every, every iota uh, in my mind, and that took about three months. But after that, you know, I would go back to, and I would discover something that I hadn't remembered the first time through. And I would spend hours just imagining, you know, the colors, the sounds, the feels of that particular moment. It was uh, it's really unique that um, uh, it, was, it, was, it was happiness, you know, it was, it was like finding a, a new friend or seeing a, a movie again or reading a book one more time when I would, you know, when I would find it, uh, you know, here's, here's a memory that I, that I had forgotten the first time through. Yeah, the amazing part is how much stuff is back in your mind. And once we got together in groups, uh, guys would teach uh, courses to the other guys. You know, we were hungry for knowledge, and they wouldn't give us a textbook. Um, and I was the, I would watch these guys sit down on, uh, you know, on their board bed and just think. And they would they would come up with uh, a college course. And I remember that the, one of the guys was taught a course in. <clears throat> in um, geology, and um, the first time, too, he could, he could only spend about an hour talking about geology, but by, by the time he was there for five or six years, the guy knew everything. He was teaching a course that lasted six months just because he would go back in his mind and trigger those thoughts that were back there that hadn't surfaced for all those years. It's amazing. really highlights how powerful the brain is. That's for sure. You know, it's one of the unfortunate... About, Go ahead. Talking about leadership, and I thought I'd ask you this question, since you're a military guy, and, and, and as I, and you've had, uh, you know, you've had some military guys on your program in the past. Um, I found and find today that a lot of the, the things I learned as a junior uh, military officer apply in the civilian world. Some things don't, but an awful lot of things do. 
And I think I proved that to myself in the prison camp. And I think that I see that today. So let me, uh, let me switch gears with you and ask you what things that you learned in the military that you apply in leadership today. Oh, gosh. You know, there isn't a day that goes by that I don't think back to um, the experiences that I had in the Marine Corps and how they applied everyday life. I didn't realize it until I was out of it, you know, because when I was in it, I was always surrounded by everybody that, you know, it was just that was the culture, right? And when I got out of right. it, it's, and when I when I was away from it, when it became so clear of, of how different it was, and I guess the biggest thing that I probably learned and the biggest stark contrast and what's helped me the most is this idea that as an officer, it's not about you, it's about them, and that as the job of the officer you know, even though on paper, and if you look at an org chart, hierarchy, you know, I'm responsible for all these men and equipment. It's not about you. That's what the Marine Corps drove into me anyway, that it's about them and it's, and everything that you can do to remove those stones, remove those rocks and help them succeed. They're the real engine. They're the real reason why we're doing what we're fighting. Even though I was a pilot, you know, they, they drove it into me that this is not about you. It's about them. And I think that mindset of leadership, um, it's it's ironic because people seem to think like, oh, it's the Marine Corps, it's the Navy, it's all about command and control. And the reality is a lot of the leadership that I experienced in the Marine Corps wasn't about command and control. It was about unleashing creativity of those be- uh, be- that you were accountable for. That and accountability. I think accountability is, a, is the big one. Um, having the moral courage to stand up and support your people's failures and you can take the heat for it. That's probably the biggest thing, too, that I see. That has taught me the most. Mm-hmm. You know, I really respect leadership in the Marine Corps, and and I've done a lot of speaking for Marines. In fact, I was at Paris Island just uh, last fall, uh, doing some leadership stuff for the Marines. And you know, I think the average civilian uh, thinks of Paris Island or the or the you know the recruit depot right. um, uh, in San Diego, uh, and they have this. Uh, this this image of this drill instructor with his, uh, this smoky bear hat and he's leaning over the, the edge of this, this poor recruit and yelling in his ear and, and, and how stark and how brash and how, as you say, command and control, uh, the Marine Corps is. But, and it, and there's a place for that. And in indoctrination, right. you know, that I think that is necessary. But at the same time, it's amazing how those drill instructors I have a sensitivity and they, you know, they get to know these guys because it's about the Marine. You know, it's not about the leadership. It's about each, each one of those guys and gals that has, uh, you know, <laughs> devoted at least part of their life to serving their country. You know, when I, the movie A Few Good Men, you know, which with right. Jack Nicholson and Tom Cruise, I remember that I was. <laughs> I was in flight school when that movie came out, and um, of course I was—I'd been in the Marine Corps less than a year, or commissioned as an officer less than a year. And we all saw that movie, and, and to the letter, you know, the, the dozen or more that saw the movie, and were like, you know, in that famous scene where Jack Nicholson, you know, kind of breaks down and finally admits that he, you know, sent the order. And there's—I'm paraphrasing, but he said something to the effect that, you know, we do, you know, we give orders, and if men don't follow them blindly. We do it, and they have to do it, otherwise men die. And I remember all of us were talking about that, and we're like, well, you know, that really wasn't the Marine Corps that I experienced. There's a time and place for that. There's a time and place, like you said, for command and control. But for the most part, um, 
I think of all the organizations that I've worked for, the one where I was encouraged to challenge my um, superior officers, it was the Marine Corps. In fact, the biggest butt chewing I got, and it wasn't really a butt chewing screaming, it was more of a disappointed father speech, which, which was more painful than, uh-huh. you know, than getting yelled at, was when I worked for the wing general. And I, did, I withheld some information. I was a captain in a major's billet, and I withheld some information. And long story short, he for him to make a decision, and I just didn't think it would matter, you know, because I was just a lowly captain. Right. And he found out about it a few days later, and he called me in his office, and he said, how dare you not challenge me if you thought I was wrong? And that's exactly what he said. How dare you? You know, what do you, he goes, what, am, what are you, what does that rank on your shoulder supposed to mean, you know? You're supposed to give me a little information. If you think I'm going to about to do something that's going to endanger the lives of other men and women, and you're not going to give me that information... And that's when it really struck mm-hmm. me that it's not my right to challenge, it's my obligation. And that's carried with mm-hmm. me throughout in, in a flying, flying in a multi-career aircraft. You gotta have that. You gotta set that tone in the cockpit. It's like, look, it's not your right to challenge me, it's your obligation. You're right. obligated yeah. to speak up if you think I'm gonna run into that's the mountain. That's a very good point. That's an excellent point. Um, I, I still fly, uh, today. I have two little airplanes, um, and, um, uh, it, it's, and I do a lot of my flying. They're both two-place airplanes, and they're fully aerobatic, and they're fun airplanes to fly. Whenever I have another pilot in my back seat, and that's the first thing I say to them, I said, you know, look, you're, you're a pilot, and I'm a pilot, and I want you to tell me if anything you see or hear or smell that that uh, that you question, please tell me, because it really is a, you know, it's a life-or-death thing. Right. And, um, and, and you have to believe that, and it's amazing how many accidents occur when one pilot assumes that the other pilot is more experienced and certainly knows what he's doing, and and then you watch, you know, a pilot watches and get into uh, trouble, and then in extremists and to the point where he can't back out. Yeah, unfortunately, there's there's more accidents than not, you know, there's more than we care to admit where an over-dominating personality prevented communication in the cockpit you know and and, mm-hmm. and lives were lost but i think that can apply in business as well i think you know that same same type of mentality from the marine corps and flying multi-career aircraft lends itself extremely well in life le- just life leadership lessons absolutely the, the second thing you mentioned i think which really applies to, that you see in the military more than you see in the spirit world almost just accountability issue yeah because, you know, in the Navy and the Marine Corps, man, if something goes wrong, you start looking up the chain of command and you say, okay, who, who is accountable for this? And, uh, and the wonderful thing about the military is that people step forward, you know, and they say, yes, this is my fault. You know, I, uh, I'll take the hit. And you don't see that in a lot of uh, civilian organizations. People are trying to cover up things. You know, they're trying to, <laughs> to hide. Hide from the truth, um, and uh, and and it hurts. You know, sometimes it hurts uh, to admit and to take that responsibility and to be accountable. But it is so very necessary. Yeah. I think if there's any, if there's any one single thing that's going wrong in our culture, it's exactly that. You know, everybody wants to, to blame uh, everybody else for the problems that they face. Uh, everyone wants to. To deny that they have any accountability, and they point the finger at other folks, and we see it every day in politics and in in, in 
doctrine in schools and in religion and all parts of our society and the corporate world. It's just amazing how you see people trying to shift that responsibility to another level. And now they won't, uh, won't accept that accountability for themselves. Yeah, I've I talked about this a lot. In my presentations, that's, this is probably the one that I've received the most feedback on. And, and look, no, nobody's perfect. I'm certainly not perfect. I've, I've failed in accountability lessons throughout my life, you know, on a personal and professional level. And then the lessons from that, though, is that the times that I have stepped up and take the heat for somebody, and it's difficult because I don't care if it's a $5 mistake or a $5 million mistake, it's it's still equally painful. And especially to admit that you made, you know, especially if functionally you did everything right and it was one of the leaders you're, or one of the subordinates you're accountable for, they, they messed up, they failed in their functional leadership responsibility. You gotta take the heat for it. And if you do, the, the funny thing is, every time that I've seen it, people take the accountability and the times that I've taken it and you, and you're thinking the worst is gonna happen, the exact opposite happens. Only good things come out of that. Every time to the letter. You know, the reality is you may lose your position, you may lose your title, you may lose your job, you may lose that relationship. There are consequences to those actions. But if you, every time that I've seen it where you've done it up from, from the, from the get go, only good things happen. The times that you tried to, to cover it up or not fully accept it, bad things happen. I mean, it's common sense, but it's, but it just doesn't happen enough. Agreed. Well, gosh, on the, you know, a little bit about, you know, the thing about, and I want, I want, I'm going to encourage people to go out and read your book and, you know, and I don't want to necessarily go through all the, the, the gruesome details and everything else. The thing that I really take away from all POWs and from your book, especially is like you, you're hitting on the power of the mind, um, the ability to stay that, that, that we are all capable of accomplishing more than we give ourselves credit for. I mean, you state that in your book that you're no hero. I mean, you just, had the fortunate, you know, faith in God and the ability to keep your mind busy. And that's the big thing I learned from the takeaway from the SEER training. They took a lot of your experiences that you guys went through and they, you know, trained us when we went through that training that you got to keep your mind active. And that's the only way that you're going to stay sane, really. Otherwise, you're, I mean, you saw it. You, you've had examples where people just kind of lost it. They checked out, right? That's true. And, you know, the other advantage that we had over all the other prisoners of war of all the other wars, is the history. And, and and we knew that in Korea, for instance, about a third of the guys died there because they just gave up. They lost their will to live. They, you know, they they wouldn't keep their mind active, and so they crawled in the corner and they atrophied and died. And it, 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 when I thought back to that history, you know, my first few days in the prison camp, I thought back to that, and I, I thought to myself, well, uh, if I die here, you know, the enemy's going to have to exert some energy for me to, to go out here feet first. Um, I'm not going to kill myself. I'm not going to atrophy and die like those Korean prisoners for did. Um, I, I absolutely forced them to kill me. I'm not going to kill myself. And there's a lot of ways you can do that. Um, you know, you can, you can get despondent and, uh, and, and that's sort of the easy way out in right. the short term. And, and, and so it's, it's a, it's a long term perspective, um, that, that I think you have to have, uh, in the military and out of the military. You have to, you have to see this thing as a, as a fuel position, you know, and, and not, not each, each, uh, each play. It has to be where you are in life. And, 
where you are on the runway of life. You know, one thing about the book that really surprised me at the end, you know, you always think, oh, you know, here comes this, this happy ending. And here you got, you left, like you said, you married your high school sweetheart. You know, you talk a little bit about your courtship, courtship which I found was, was kind of poignant and, and amusing too, uh, with Anne. And then you marry, and like you said, you leave her on her birthday and then you get, get captured and, and then, therefore, why you finally find a way to communicate? She finds you're alive. You're writing letters, and the letters start to drop off. And what really took me by surprise, and I was really kind of bummed at the end. But I know it had a happier ending. But I want to hear some more about that. That when you came back, and and filed for divorce four months prior to you getting back, right? She did. She went on uh, on fight for five years, and then filed for divorce. She, you know, she had uh, she ran into this guy at the well, she went back to school at Kansas State in Manhattan, Kansas, and found a guy there and uh, fell in love with him. Uh, the the sad, sad part, um, I guess from all perspective, is that in a lot of ways, she had it worse than I did. Right. Because I, I knew I was alive, and, and she didn't. I was confident that I was going to come home, and she wasn't. Right. And I knew that I was still, I was still sane. And I knew that it had to go through her mind that if I ever did come home, would I be a burden to her for the rest of her life? Uh, would I be disabled in some way that would make it very difficult for you know for us to reach back? So she had changed, and I had changed, and um, she uh, decided that she wanted to marry this uh, other guy. And and when I came home, she was wearing a big diamond ring that um, and was just waiting. For, uh, for me to, to come home. The, the judge would not grant her a divorce while I was in prison because I was not there to defend myself. Right. And um, and so she was just waiting for me to come home, and she was very resolute with this. Well, of course, you know that was a, that was a, a great shock to me because I had I had lived day by day just at the hope of being back with her. Right. And, uh, you know, and, and, uh, starting our family and, and continuing our, our, our wonderful life together. And, uh, and so it was, in fact, it, it changed my whole, whole aspect on my future. And I had to sort of regroup. Now, um, the, the end result, however, is, a is a happy one, even though it was some, challenge there in the middle of the story. Uh, I had remarried, and we had four wonderful children, and, um, and I couldn't be happier. And she as well. She married the guy and, and moved on with her life. And so, and this is not an unusual story. You know, over half of us came back to divorces. Wow. Uh, and and I felt like I was one of the fortunate ones because we had no children. And, uh, and some of the guys had left pregnant wives. That's amazing. And now these kids are six or seven or eight years old, and um, and suddenly they're going through a divorce uh, when they come home. So, um, it, I mean, it's amazing how these challenges in life actually work out for the best. And, uh, and my, my new line is, adversity is a horrible thing, a waste. And I truly believe that every challenge you have in your life, in business or in your personal life, can work to your advantage. Now, the key, of course, is figuring that out. It's a big puzzle. And, um, and, and when, I, when I approach a 
challenge in life, I, I say to myself, hey, if, uh, if, if all these audiences, you know, you're speaking at, at, uh, 75 or 85 times a year and you're telling every one of those audiences that some good can come from the challenge in your life. It's all in the choices that you make. Now, now prove it. And so I challenged myself to figure out what the advantage is to the challenge that I'm going through and what choices I can make to figure out that advantage. Well, you know, Charlie, and to all the folks that went there that endured what you did, I mean, I'm always amazed about what you did. You know, you say you're no hero. You're obviously a hero to myself and to so many of us out there, and I appreciate your story. Um, where can people find you before we close this up? Your, the book is I'm No Hero. You can get it on uh, iTunes, Amazon.com. But is there a website um, people can find you? There is. As a matter of fact, uh, my website is charlieplum.com. It's C-H-A-R-L-I-E-P-L-U-M-B.com. And um, if you order it from my website, I'll be happy to autograph it for you. Uh, or send me an email if you want to get any further questions. There's a lot on my website about my story and the other guys that I was with with over there, and so we, uh, you know, kind of keep this thing up to date. Of course, I <clears throat> am um, on Facebook and LinkedIn and all those that you can connect to those guys to my website, charliethumb.com. Awesome, Charlie. Thanks for coming on the show and talking leadership and sharing some of your story with me. Thanks, Richard. I, I appreciate it, and I truly appreciate your you're spreading the word. You know, uh, I hadn't heard of Ghost of Leadership before you contacted me, and I've been back to some of the uh, some of the interviews the last one we had with Doug Connick and uh, my good buddy uh, Marsha Goldsmith and Mark Sanborn, and and you, you you really have some some great leaders on here, and I can uh, I'm gonna uh, sign up and uh, and continue to listen to you. So keep up the good work, my friend. And super five. All right, super five to you, and uh, hang on the line for a second, and we'll chat for just a few more seconds. Thanks, Charlie. Okay. You bet. Richard invites you to become a part of the Dose of Leadership community. Visit doseofleadership.com and sign up to receive his free Common Sense Leadership ebook, a guide that highlights how all of us can learn to become calm, confident, consistent, and courageous in all aspects of our lives. Richard is also available as a speaker for your next event. Richard specializes in practical leadership and change management. He has a philosophy of inspiring everyone to think and act like a leader, which is based on timeless natural principles and common sense. You can get more info by visiting doseofleadership.com.